Well, good morning. Uh, as you can notice, this is our deadline for our uh, food boxes for Glenview Elementary. And I was doing my count there. I know where two boxes are, but there are eight, it appears, that uh, are not up here. So I've, all I want to say is, if you'll get those to us, please, today. If not, then um, I'm going to have to go find two boxes to fill because there are 40 families who are expecting those. But I know somebody's probably got them in their car. If you need help bringing it in, uh, that's fine. If you took a box and for whatever reason were not able to fill it, please let us know. It's no big deal. I will not mention your name. I will not put a slide up about you. I will not post it on our Facebook page. We just want to make sure that we get all these boxes filled uh, for these families. And let me tell you, um, we'll do a full report uh, next Sunday and let you know, but I appreciate so much. I can't appreciate near as much as they are going to your generosity uh, in donating also towards these gift cards. Um, you have you have blessed some families. And so uh, I appreciate your response to that so much, and I know they will. So we're going to be uh, taking those over on Wednesday. Uh, we'll spend the next couple of days sealing them up. We're going to put some uh, information about uh, Summers Avenue in there, and then uh, we'll get those over to them uh, for their distribution. So I just want to mention that. And also I want to ask you to, to keep in your prayers a fellow named Travis Smith. Travis is an inmate at Cummins Prison, and as you know, uh, we go, uh, the men go about once a quarter, about four times a year to Cummins Prison, and we do a worship service for them. And so Travis has been taking our Bible correspondence course with uh, Gil and Charles and, and Frank, and so he has requested to be baptized. So we've been trying to coordinate that, and it appears that we're going to be able to do that uh, this week. And so uh, I think uh, Charles and, and Gil are making plans to go up uh, this week for that. So I just solicit your prayers. There is so much red tape, as you can imagine, uh, just being able to, to get into the prison and set aside a time and to be able to, to baptize someone. So uh, keep Travis Smith in your prayers, too, as he's waiting uh, for us to be able to get there and do that. And then lastly, I just want to say a big thank you to everybody who was involved in Breakfast with Santa. Uh, I appreciate so much. I'm going to call her out, uh, Tracy Johnson. I know there were so many other people who helped with this, uh, but she's kind of the, the spearhead for it. And so I appreciate her and everyone who was involved uh, to make this a, a great morning yesterday for our kids. Uh, we even had Santa Claus there, and we had some of the best bacon that I think uh, most of us have ever put in our mouths. And so you'll see everybody smiling who was there because you know that bacon was so good. And so uh, ask Tracy where she got it, and she'll let you know. But I uh, appreciate that so much. So we started um, last week this journey, first of four weeks, in this, what I would call the ultimate Old Testament love story. We're in the book of Ruth. And so it puts, to me, this, this story puts romance novels and movies in our culture uh, in, in as absolute shame. So when you look at uh, the, the love that is, is just wrapped up in this story, and I want to recap uh, kind of what we talked about last week, uh, quickly in, in Ruth 1. So Naomi had a husband, Elimelech, and they had two sons. And so they lived in Bethlehem. But famine had come, and so Elimelech took his family and he moved to Beverly. You know, I was thinking about Jed Clampett. But, so they, they packed up the family and they left. And so you have this, these, this Jewish family, these uh, members of, of God's chosen people, and they leave Bethlehem and they go to a foreign land. And so they flee. Because at this time in Bethlehem, which means house of bread, there was no bread. And so famine had come. And so Elimelech led his family to leave behind the promised land, leave behind Bethlehem, and go to a land of compromise. 
this foreign land, in this case Moab. And so as we remember from Moab, basically the Moabites came to be when Lot, Abraham's nephew, had incestuous relationship with his daughters. And so uh, that's where this came from. Not a very good past here and certainly a deeper animosity than we can even imagine between the Jews and the Moabites. And so these are the relatives that nobody wanted to invite, much less hope that they would not show up at the family dinners, at all the family gatherings. So Elimelech leads his family to, of all places, Moab. So they arrive there, and when they get there, unexpectedly, Elimelech dies. And so Naomi is left with her two sons and their wives, these two daughters-in-law who are Moabites. These, her sons have married these foreign women. And so uh, it's not working out the way Naomi had thought. And, you know, we sit down and, and parents will do this. You have these visions of how your children's lives are going to play out, and they don't play out that way, usually do they. Sometimes better than you can expect it, and sometimes heartbreaking. And so now she finds herself in a foreign land with two daughters-in-law who are, of all people, Moabites. And it's uh, Orpah and Ruth. And it's so hard not to say Oprah. And so Orpah and Ruth. And so that's why I say it slowly. And so then after ten years here in this land where neither of her sons and their wives had any children, her sons die unexpectedly. And so now she's left alone. She's a widow. She has two daughters-in-law who are now widows, Moabites nonetheless, and childless. And so now she hears news that, hey, there's bread in Bethlehem. They're, they're producing food again in Bethlehem. And so she decides, I've got to go back. I've got to go back to my people, to my land. And so she begins this journey back to Bethlehem. And on the way, she tries to dissuade Orpah and Ruth from going with her. And she says, no, you, for your good, you need to stay here in this land. These are your people. This is your land. It's where you grew up. This is your culture. You need to stay here because... If you stay here, perhaps you can remarry and perhaps you can have children, start a family now. But if they're to come with her, they're going to be basically compromising themselves and, 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 and giving themselves over to perpetual uh, widowhood and childlessness. And so she, she, she tries to convince them, and Orpah does. She, she takes it. She's, okay, I'm out. And so she turns back. But in chapter 1 and verse 16 and verse 17, one of the most majestic pictures of commitment in all of Scripture, we have Ruth who tells her mother-in-law, I'm going with you. I'm staying with you and, and your God will be my God and your people will be my people. And not only that, where you are buried is where I'm going to be buried. And so she commits to stay with her mother-in-law. So at the end of chapter 1, we have Ruth and Naomi beginning this journey together back to Bethlehem. So all the people who knew Naomi, see them, and they run up to her. Hey, Naomi! Hey, girl, where you been? And so everybody's coming up, and they're so glad to see them. Naomi, whose name means pleasant. And Naomi, if you can imagine what she has been through, not to mention the journey that she's been on, what her face must have looked like. And she looks at them and she says, Uh-uh. I don't answer to that anymore. You don't call me Naomi. I'm not pleasant anymore. You call me Marah. Because I am bitter. I am bitter. And so they've come all the way back with nothing. She says, I'm bitter. I left here as a, as a woman who had everything. And I'm coming back with nothing. And she throws in a little thought that she's had there. Because God has afflicted me and He has brought this misfortune on me. 
And so as she tells this, <coughs> as she recounts this, right there at her side stands Ruth. Ruth don't look like she belongs here. She looks a little different than everybody else. Ruth is a picture of Naomi's husband's sin. See, if he hadn't left this land, there would be no Ruth. We wouldn't be dealing with this right now. But he left the promised land to go off to another land and coming back now with this Moabite daughter-in-law. That's all this woman's got. And so that's where the end of Ruth 1 leaves us. But it leaves us with just a glimmer of hope. A glimmer of hope. Because why? Because the barley harvest is beginning. See, we're, we're living, we're walking in this despair with Naomi. But the author throws in a little bit of hope because remember there's a story beneath the story. There's light at the end of the tunnel. And so the truth that really encapsulated what we saw last week is that God in His sovereign design, His sovereign direction, He ordains, He, he sets aside sorrowful tragedy to set the stage for sometimes the most surprising triumph. And so in those moments where it may seem like God is the farthest from us, when we can't even sense the faintest amount of His presence, it is at that moment when God is ready to display His greatest faithfulness to us. And so, Ruth chapter 2 and verse 1, we continue. Now, Naomi had a relative on her husband's side of the family named Boaz. And he was wealthy. He was a prominent man from the clan of Elimelech. And so we identified last week what these two widowed, childless women were in greatest need of. You remember this. They needed food and they needed family. They needed protection. They needed somebody to care for them. So how are they going to be provided with food and with family? So in Ruth chapter 2 and verse 1, we have this enter the knight in shining armor. This man Boaz. And there are two integral facts about Boaz that are brought out here in Scripture, mentioned in verse 1. First, he's from the clan of Elimelech. And so we read through that and say, okay, whatever. Well, in the way Israelite society worked is that as an individual, you're part of a family. And a family is part of a clan, several other families. This would be the Christmas dinner when you get together with the cousins and their wives and families. And so... Clans, multiple clans make up a tribe. And so we hear a lot about, you know, the tribes of Israel, you know, Judah and what have you. And so those are made up of these clans, which are made up of families, which are made up of individuals. And so you've got individual, family, clan, and tribe. And at the clan level, this is the most important social family group that there was in Israelite society because it was within this clan. If you were part of someone else's clan, then, then you had responsibilities specifically the men, for caring for the women who were part of this family group, providing for others that were within this family clan. So it's significant that Boaz here is from the same clan as Elimelech, Naomi's husband. And so then it says that he was a man of good standing, a man of standing, which could mean he's very well off, but it's likely a reference to his character. He's a man thought highly of in this society, in this town. And so it's the same phrase that's used in Judges 6. You remember Gideon, you know, mighty man of, of, of valor? It's the same wording that's used here. So we kind of get the picture of that. we got this picture of Boaz as kind of this knight in shining armor who's there to take care of things. And so in verse 2 it says, One day Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, Let me go to the field so I can gather grain behind whoever permits me to do so. And Naomi replied, You may go, my daughter. So Ruth went and gathered grain in the fields behind the harvesters. 
So God had set up this expectation during harvest season that those who were harvesting would provide for those who had no land, who had no way to, to, to grow and, and, to, and to gather their own food. And so when the landowners were harvesting their grain, or when the harvesters were going out to, to harvest these fields, they were to leave the corners of the fields, the perimeter of the fields, for those who were poor or those who had no other provision. So as they walked by, they didn't have to infiltrate the field. They could just kind of hang out on the perimeter and they would have food that they could get. And so this was, this was God's law in Israelite society so that those who were poor and destitute could be provided for. So Ruth is saying, look, I'm going out and I'm going to see if I can find a landowner, if I can find a harvester who's following God's will, who's doing what God has said is supposed to be done. And they might grant me favor so I can gather for them. So she's looking for somebody who would let her get a little bit of food. Just a little bit of provision. Maybe it'll last a day or two. Just get us to the next week. Just a little bit of grain to get by. So this is where, this is where it really gets good. This is where it really gets good. So now she just happened to end up in the portion of the field belonging to Boaz, who was from the clan of Elimelech. So it's like, what a coincidence. How about, can you imagine that? You know, look at that phrase. She happened to end up. She just happened to end up. I don't know. You know, we would say today, we would say, as luck would have it. So we kind of understand what's going on here. She just happened, as luck would have it, she just happened to go out into the middle of all these fields in Judah and just happened to find herself, who would have thunk it? In the field of Boaz. So that's where Ruth is now. But brothers and sisters, I want you to hold on to this thought. We are not driven and we are not caught up in some blind, impersonal force or chance. We are not. Because there is a sovereign God who is always orchestrating the events of His creation for their good and for His glory. And so Ruth and Boaz have no idea the implications of their meeting today. They have no idea how the choices that they've made in the past. No, I will go with you and your people will be my people. They have no idea how their choices are going to impact generations and how those choices have brought them to this place and this time. But see, we know it because we're looking backwards. We're knowing because we're looking from their future. We can see backwards. We, we can connect the dots backwards. And our lives are the same way. We stand here today and we think of things in the future. and We have no idea what is coming. But we can look backwards and we can see our lives in the past. And we can connect some dots. See, God manages. He manages the implications of our choices for the good of His people. God, who is unbound by time and space, He can look forward and He can look backward. And notice I said manages. God manages it. We are creatures of free will. We have freedom to choose. And the way humanity has survived its choices, you look back and probably the way you and I are here today, the way God has provided for us to ultimately survive those choices. That's why we're here today. It's by His managing the implications of our choices for our greater good. And this is incredible. This is incredible to think about. So at this very moment, verse 4, Boaz arrived from Bethlehem and greeted the harvesters. May the Lord be with you as He comes out to His field for the day. And they replied, May the Lord bless you. This is too much. Because Ruth had just happened to come to Boaz's field when he arrived. And when she gets there, you never guess who shows up. 
And so in the Old Testament, you can know a lot about someone based on the first few words recorded from their mouth. And so we have this picture from the very beginning as Boaz comes on the scene. What does the author of Ruth want us to know? He's a man of God. He's an upright man. So Boaz asked his servant in charge of the harvesters, to whom does this woman belong? Hey, psst, come here a second. Who's that? And you know what this means in the original Old Testament? Yo, check her out. <laughs> that's, what, that's the Hebrew. Of all people in the field, now notice what he says. He doesn't say, who is that? He says, whose young woman is that? Meaning, to, does, to whom does she belong? Who's her family? Who's she connected to? Who's she a part of? And here's the tension in the book of Ruth here because she's a Moabite daughter-in-law. She's got no husband and she's got no clan to live with. She is in need of family. And that's exactly how this foreman, this worker, replies here in verse 6. The servant in charge of the harvesters replied, she's the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the region of Moab. And she asked, may I follow the harvesters? And gather grain among the bundles. Since she arrived, she's been working hard from this morning until now. Except for sitting and resting in the hut a short time. And this is surprising because basically Boaz, this wealthy Israelite landowner, is now going directly to this Moabite woman foreigner in his field. I mean, she is the lowest rung on the social ladder. And listen to what he says. So Boaz said to Ruth, Listen carefully, my dear. Don't leave to gather grain in another field. You need not go beyond the limits of this field. You may go along beside my female workers and take note of the field where the men are harvesting and follow behind with the female workers. I will tell the men to leave you alone. And when you are thirsty, you may go to the water jars and drink some of the water these servants draw. Now, how's that for an Old Testament pickup line right there? See, you might, and I want you to circle. Circle. You can do it mentally. I, some of y'all cannot, cannot... It took me a while to be able to feel like I could write in my Bible. But you may circle or take out your stylus. Do not leave or stay here where he says this. Remember Ruth chapter 1 and verse 14. What did Ruth say to Naomi as she clung to her? We talked about that last week. Entreat me not to leave you. Boaz says, don't leave. You hang on. That's the same word also that's used in Genesis chapter 2 and verse 24 where a man shall live, leave his father and mother and cleave or cling to his wife. You're getting the picture here of what's this connection that is starting to happen. Don't leave this field. Hang around here. Don't go to that field. Don't go to any other field. You stay here and you'll be provided for and you'll be protected in my field. And it was common... In that day for women, particularly foreigners, to be harassed, even abused or mistreated, as others saw fit, very, at the very least insulted. And so, if we're the original readers of this story here, our jaws are on the ground because this whole thing is shocking. It's shocking here. All the lines that Boaz is crossing to go to this Moabite woman here. You can drink from these jars. This is the day when foreigners filled the jars for the landowners, for the Israelites. It's the day when women are the ones who, who provide for the men to drink. And what does he say? Let me get you some water. And what you have here is Israelite men filling jars 
for Moabite women to drink. And we're shocked. We should be shocked hearing this in its original setting here. Which is why we wouldn't be surprised when we get to verse 10. Because we're going to think, well, this sounds a lot like he's overdoing it here. This is kind of going, going overboard. But this made total sense in light of what just happened. So in verse 10, it says, Ruth knelt before him with her forehead to the ground and said to him, Why are you so kind and so attentive to me, even though I'm a foreigner? So Ruth is sitting there. She's shocked at how Boaz is treating her. And listen to this picture in verse 11. So Boaz replied to her, I've heard about you. I've been given a full report of all that you have done for your mother-in-law following the death of your husband. How you left your father and your mother as well as your homeland and you came to live among people you did not know previously. And may the Lord reward your efforts. May your acts of kindness be repaid fully by the Lord God of Israel from whom you have sought protection. And she said, you really are being kind to me, sir. For you have reassured and encouraged me, your servant even though I'm not one of your servants. See, by default, as a foreigner woman, she was a servant, but she wasn't officially a servant. So basically, Ruth just said, look, I know I'm on the lowest rung of this social ladder. I know where I stand, and yet you have comforted my heart. You have done this for me. You have spoken to my soul. And that's the same kind of language that in Ruth chapter 1, verse 16 and 17, we saw when she spoke to Naomi. It's the same words that left Naomi speechless. And the same thing happens here. Boaz apparently says nothing in return. It's just stunned. Verse 14, Later during the mealtime, Boaz said to her, Come here and, and have some food. Dip your bread in the vinegar. So she sat down beside the harvesters. And then he handed her some roasted grain, and she ate until she was full and saved the rest. And when she got up to gather grain, Boaz told his male servants, Let her gather grain even among the bundles, and don't chase her off. Make sure you pull out ears of grain for her and you drop them so she can gather them. Don't tell her not to. See, this is basically the first date. So Boaz is... You know you've taken it up a notch when you share food from the same plate. And so I remember remember when Tressa and I went on our first serious date, I guess. You know, and you say, what are you eating? Well, I'm eating, you know, and so you start sharing food. This This has moved into a whole different level here with this. So this is not just a Moabite foreigner woman who's invited to the table. Boaz goes to her, literally serving her. He's serving her. Boaz, the Lord of harvest. It's his land, his field, his produce. The Lord of harvest serving the foreigner at his table. Making sure she's provided for and protected. So she gathered grain in the field until evening. And when she threshed what she had gathered... It came to about 30 pounds of barley. And she carried it back to town, and her mother-in-law saw how much grain she had gathered. Then Ruth gave her the roasted grain she had saved for mealtime. So she straps this 30 pounds of grain, you know, however, and carries it back to the house. And can you see Naomi's face? Naomi watching and waiting. When's Ruth coming home? And she sees Ruth coming, hauling this 30-pound bag of grain. And so she's like, you see, sitting there all day hoping Ruth is going to be safe. I mean, you've got to be worried about her. She's a, a foreigner in a foreign land. She's got really nobody looking out for her except another woman, Naomi. And so she worries about her. Maybe she'll come back 
Hopefully it's a little success, maybe a little meal for the evening, maybe something we can have for breakfast. And she comes back hauling 30 pounds of grain. And so Ruth, and this is where it's really funny, Ruth, not only does Ruth throw down this 30 pounds of grain, and Naomi's got her jaw on the ground, but then Ruth reaches in her back pocket and says, oh yeah, by the way, I had macaroni grill. Here's some leftovers, you know? And so she brings her leftovers. I mean, you got, uh, Naomi has just got to be stunned at this point. And remember last time we saw Naomi. Don't call me Naomi. You call me Mara because I'm bitter. And now, in a moment, she has gone from bitterness to blessedness. And could it be, brothers and sisters, that in the middle of our sorrow, in the middle of our suffering, God may just be plotting for our greatest satisfaction. And her mother-in-law asked her, Where did you gather grain today? Where have you been? Where did you go? Where would you work? May the one who took notice of you be rewarded. Who, who gave you this? And so what we realize is that the best news is yet to come because we know the rest of this story. Ruth's been working in the field of Boaz. But Ruth doesn't know who Boaz is. Naomi knows who Boaz is, but Naomi doesn't know it was Boaz. And so we're like, hurry up, tell her! You can feel this. And as hearers and readers of this story, we can see Naomi's face. We can see it. We cannot wait for her to hear whose field Ruth has been in. So Ruth told her mother-in-law. She said, the name of the man whom I work today is Boaz. And I imagine she said it with a twinkle in her eye. Maybe she said it two or three times just to hear it. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, may he be rewarded by the Lord, because He has shown loyalty to the living on behalf of the dead. And then Naomi said to her, This man is a close relative of ours. He's family. He's our guardian. And there are two words here at the heart of this story. Kindness and Redeemer or guardian. And kindness is an Old Testament word and it's always used in reference to God's covenant faithfulness. It's an important word. It's at the heart of the Old Testament. God's loving kindness. And guardian or redeemer is a relative. Somebody who, who is part of a family, part of a clan. Someone who has a responsibility. Not just a responsibility, but they have a right to redemption, to redeem, to, to purchase back any property of another relative and to provide for someone from their family who's been left destitute. Someone whose husband has died, so to speak. They're a kinsman redeemer. And so Ruth realizes this is not just an extremely honorable man here who has helped her that day. This is our kinsman redeemer. Of all people in the world, I would hope to meet. It would be the very one who could take care of us. And guess who she met? And Ruth the Moabite replied, He even told me you may go along beside my servants until they finish gathering all my harvest. And Naomi then said to her daughter-in-law, Ruth, it is good, my daughter, that you should go out to work with his female servants. That way you won't be harmed, which could happen in another field. And so Ruth worked beside Boaz's female servants, gathering grain until the end of the barley harvest, as well as the wheat harvest. And after that, she stayed home with her mother-in-law. 
So you got two major problems in the book of Ruth that, that need to be solved. They were in need of food and they were in need of family. And so Ruth had experienced now the provision of God through the kindness of Boaz, this man. And that would take her and it would take Naomi through the rest of the year. I mean, that much, what he provided for her in itself would have provided for the rest of the year for them. It's amazing, this provision. And then you would think something would happen. But at the very end of this section, the author says, and she lived with her mother-in-law. And you're like, wow, talk about disappointing. What's next? You know? Remember, I want to challenge you. You're, you're thinking here, Boaz, what are you waiting for, man? You've you got you to do something about it. She's in your field. She came to you. you, you know, these problems here that, that, that have been solved for her in three months. Three months she's been in this field. And, and at the end, what? They needed food. They needed family. They got food. Now what? I don't want to challenge us. Don't read ahead. You know the story, but don't read ahead. Live in it. Because this is the tension of life. I got a blessing. Now what? I need something. Now what? That's the tension of living. Don't read ahead. This is one of the things I love most about the book of Ruth. We don't see God mentioned explicitly in every single verse as we do most of the other Bible. We see what we saw like in verse 3. It just so happens. The author puts that in. It just so happens. By chance. Those are put in there for a reason. Because to let us know, to point to the fact that God is working behind the scenes. This is not by chance. And all these things, God is working. But the way Ruth is written is intentional. It's intentional to show us that God is working behind the scenes and what people are doing. So God is showing His love for Naomi. How is He doing that? Through this radical provision, this radical devotion. Ruth and Naomi, this relationship. I don't care what happens. Where you go, I will go. And where you live, I will live. And where you die, I will die and be buried. And God is showing His concern for the poor, His concern for the alien, His concern for the outcast through this man Boaz who has come and has had concern for the poor and for the alien. See, what we're seeing in the lives of these people is a picture of the character of God. God seeks the outcast as if they were part of His own family. And not only does He invite them to the table, He serves them. And He shelters them under His wing. He serves the hungry at His tables. And finally, He showers the needy with His grace. That the Lord of harvest invites us to His table. And not only do we understand the nature of God through this book, but we also, looking at it, understand how we must spend our lives, how we must align our lives for that which God has said is most important. See, God has become our refuge. He sheltered us under His wings. He has sought us as family. That's what God has done for us. The Lord of harvest has invited you to His table. And not only has He invited you to feast at His table, but He serves you at His table. The God of the universe stooping to serve us in love. And the book of Ruth lifts our hearts to believe that one day when God reveals the great tapestry of human history and human story, that we will see clearly how we fit into it. 
we'll see how our few little threads, even the darkest ones, even the frayed ones, were part of this glorious picture that only God's goodness and only God's provision and only God's providence could have achieved. And if that does not astound us, then we don't know God. But God knows us. Before I formed you in your mother's womb, I knew you. God knows us. Do you know God? Because if you know God, you know how much He cares about your soul. God cares about the provisions of the human flesh. He cares that people are starving. He cares that they're hungry. He cares that their hearts are broken over life. He cares about that. But He cares about that because He cares about our soul. He cares about us eternally, which is now and forever. And God knows that what keeps us from the forever is sin. It's sin, it's choices, it's decisions, and it's consequences of things that we do with our life. It's attitudes, it's actions, it's relationships that we should not be a part of, relationships that we are part of destroying. See, any sin like that is what separates us, what puts that barrier, that canyon between us and God. But the great thing, the marvelous thing about God's provision is He provides a way across that. And He does it through Jesus Christ. And because of Jesus Christ, we can repent of that sin. We can ask His forgiveness and God will forgive. And once again, He will pull the chair out at the table and He will seat us there. And He will serve us. That's what our God does for us. It's because of Jesus Christ. The greatest provision. When we are baptized into Christ for the forgiveness of our sins, we are washed clean. We become part of not just God's clan, God's tribe, but God's eternal kingdom forever providing for us. But it's only through Christ. And so this morning, as we think about God's working, His providence, His care, His movement in the lives of humanity, is He moving in your heart this morning? We're going to stand and we're going to sing a song to encourage you to, if you need to repent of a sin, God calls you to do that. And let us pray for you this morning. Encourage you in that moment. And if you're ready to put on Christ in baptism, to be washed free of your sins, become part of God's eternal kingdom, then we want to rejoice and celebrate that decision with you this morning. So now as we stand and sing, what will your answer be?